what we are doing here at Seven Mile Road is, is a part of something that's taking place all over the world. For millennia, we are connected to history. And so what we're doing here is not something that's isolated, but we really are at Seven Mile Road connected to the church, the baby dedications, the worship, all this stuff. It's not stuff that we thought up of. And so we talked through the first week how we are part of believers of all time across the globe, across history, who believe in Christ. Then a couple of weeks ago, we talked through several metaphors of, of what the scriptures talk that the church is like. The church is likened to many things in the scriptures. And we talked through how it's, how it's sort of like the body of Christ, that we are, we are the body with many members all playing a part. The scriptures talk about this numerous times where we see that the church is sort of like, you know, Jay sort of talked about the idea that if you lose your pinky, you're really not part of the, you know, that's, that's not a full body. And so really we are the body of Christ. And also, if you think about it like, like a building, we think about the idea that, that the church is not necessarily these, these physical structures. It's not these places that we gather into. And not only that, but that we, when we say we come to church, it's not that we come through the doors and we enter a building, a church, but we ourselves are the church. And so even when we talk about the building and the structure, we are the church. We individually are stones of the church. And so as, when we say that we are the church, we can just sort of imagine that we have these, these steeples over our head as hats. We literally are the church. It's not something that we go to. It's not something that we do. But we are the church. Imagine us with, with, with just mobile buildings just walking around the earth. Everywhere we go, work, school, all that stuff. We are the church. Each of us just like a stone of the church with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. And then last week, we began to focus on what it means to be the church, lowercase c, the local church here at Seven Mile Road. What does that look like? And what does that mean? We talked through how a lot of us, a lot of us have been hurt by the church. Many of you may be here who have been hurt by the church, either by people or just by the whole system of things. You've been hurt. And then we've also talked about if it's important to be connected to a local church body, can we sort of just be isolated on an island and say we want to do church by ourselves without any connection? And then further, is it important that we are connected to just one church rather than just sort of going all over the place like a, like a drive through restaurant, picking whatever we want on the menu and saying, I'm going to get whatever I want, never being committed to just one thing. And so we address the honest criticism of, of the fact that the church has hurt people, that um, many people don't necessarily like the idea of church, even Christians. And so further, we connected with one local church. And at the end of it all, we said that there is no language, even in scriptures, that talk about that kind of a Christianity. We said that if you look at the scriptures, not, there's not even a category for that kind of a person. And so when we say we are Christians, we can't stand on an island alone. We can't beyond ourselves. That's, that's not what Christianity talks about when it talks about our, our state and, our, and our, our involvement. The commitment to one single local church, it's not just a nice idea. It's not just something we think up of. It's not just a suggestion or a better way to Christianity. But when the scriptures talk about that, it's sort of like a consequence to your Christianity. We're not saying that your, your salvation is based on your church attendance, that you're committed to one single local church, but rather what we are saying is that when you're Christian, the consequence is, as we said last week, that you are committed to a local church. Okay, so where does all of that bring us today? Been through three weeks of talking to, through this kind of stuff, and now for the several next weeks, we're going to be talking about what this actually looks like. What do we 
look like? What to us the church look like? We've sort of surveyed, sort of hovered over and seen what the church is, what its significance is, and, and we've talked about the idea that we are the body of Christ, that we are as Christians these individual stones of the church. But what do these stones look like? What, what is the makeup of, of, of these stones? What do we look like? If we're the body of Christ, individual members, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, how do we identify and express what it means to be the church? And so a lot of times we'll throw out this language, I go to church, I'm a Christian, I've been doing this and this and that, but we really often, me included, have uh, distorted perceptions of what that really means. So here's the question we're going to be asking ourselves today. What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ? We're starting from the foundation. What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ? We have churches all over the world. What are all these churches about? What, what do we base our lives on? What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be saved? That's what we're addressing today. And so some of us, I'm pretty sure when I hear a message like this, some of us maybe just have tuned out already because this is so elemental, right? This, this is something that we have down. We've done church. We've done the whole thing and we get this. This is the most simple part. Talk to me about some great theology of of imputation or something like that, more technical. I got this. But now, we, 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 some of us have done this well. We, we were born into this. We literally were born into a Christian home, and so we've done church all of our lives. I, I was there. You know the verses. You're probably that perfect kid who knows Psalm 119 and recites it by heart without even taking a breath or blinking, and you hate that kid because... You just hate him because he knows the psalm and he, he gets the trophies, the big trophies that he doesn't deserve. And you're probably that kid that just, just gets church, just gets the whole culture of it. You know the verses. You know the actions that you're supposed to do. Or maybe you're different. Maybe you're a different person who sort of is like, I'm a Christian, but I really don't know what that means. Like your biggest fear in life is that someone would ask you, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in Jesus Christ? And can you explain that to me? Yeah, at work, you try to hide your Bible in your Christian books because you don't want anyone to ask you that question because you have no idea how to answer it. And so you're thinking maybe to yourself now, if I believe in this thing and I'm basing my entire life on it, it's probably a good thing that I know why I believe it. And you're probably thinking, if I'm professing this truth, if someone asks that to me, if the world asks that to me, how do I really answer that question? Or you're maybe here simply unsure about Christianity, all of it. Maybe you're here just looking for something meaningful, that you've looked to religion, you've looked to all these different things, philosophies and all of this stuff, trying to find meaning, and somehow you found yourself here. Or maybe you think you found it, but some, for some reason you're here today. And maybe that's where you are, I don't know. My hope is that we are able to get an understanding of what it means, what it really means to be a believer in Christ, not just up here, not just knowing the language, not just knowing the actions, but what does it really mean to believe in Jesus Christ truly? And how does that affect us? John Calvin, a reformer of the Christian faith in the 1500s, says this, Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. The knowledge of God and of ourselves, to understand anything, we need to know what it is that we're really even talking about and to define those things accurately. 
Knowing God is no small thing because, why? Because He's God. We're not. We're not God's. But I'd argue that, that knowing ourselves may be even more difficult. Why? Because when we say that we, we want to know ourselves, that sort of says you have to know God. In order to, for you to know yourself, you have to have an accurate knowledge of God. And so if, if, if meaning, when we say we want to know ourselves, we're saying that, not only do we need to have a self-knowledge of ourselves, but we also need to know God. So it is that much more difficult. And so, there's still another block in this whole thing when we're sort of getting at these questions of belief and heart and, and core issues. When we approach God's Word, this thing that we call true, this thing that we call inerrant and infallible, when we approach this, we, we, we which is truth found in this, when we approach this, specifically when we deal with something so foundational as belief, the thing that we build everything on, when we deal with something so fundamental, our tendency, our default is to reject it. It's to say, no, it can't really be like that. Or maybe that's not what the language is really saying. And we'll make excuses. And we don't say these things because these, these ideas are complex. We don't say these ideas because they go over our head or are complicated. But no, because it, when we read in Romans chapter 118, what we read is that in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. That's what we do when we hear truth. We don't want it. We suppress it. And so we make excuses. We say that I, I'm a Christian. I get this. Why do I need to hear this? And so we make these excuses. We act as if the, we're the exception to the rule and that we are that, you know, isolated case. Now, we're going we're gonna to be in Ephesians 2 today. We'll read that in just a moment. But as we read it, our, our hearts will want to reject it our hearts would want to reduce the significance of it and say, no, that's not really me. That's not really me. I understand this. Or you'll say, that is irrelevant. It's really not important. It's really not that important as you're saying, as you're making it out to believe. We'll want to suppress the truth that we read in God's Word. And so as we read this, let's open our hearts. Let's let the, the words of God in Scripture really penetrate our hearts. Let's not just read this and say these are words that really don't have much meaning or these are words that really don't mean this, this, and that, but let it open up in your heart. And let's, let's read that together. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. We'll read this and we'll pray. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. May we not stand over it, God, but may we sit under it, Lord. May we read these words. May we not just put them on the side and say, okay, that's great and well, teach me something else. Or may we not say, that's really not as bad as, as I am. Or may we not lessen its importance. May we see the depravity of our souls, of our condition, God. Would you convict us even this day if we have become mediocre in our belief? Would you convict us today if we don't have any belief in you at all? By your grace, Lord, would you save us today? 
We need you. We really need you. Not our own selves, not our own knowledge, but we need you to really tell us who we are, what our condition is, and who you are, God. We ask that you would instruct this time, that you would teach us, Lord. Amen. All right, so here's what the Bible tells us. God, who is all-powerful, all-loving, all-gracious, controls everything and has created everything. This God has created the earth, all that is within it, all that's in it, including you and me, every person that has ever existed, exists now, will exist in the future. He's created all of it. This world that we live in right now, it was given to us by God in freedom to enjoy it. It was given to us to walk and to live. When we read about Eden, the Garden of Eden, the story in Genesis 2, it seems pretty amazing. It seems pretty ideal. I mean, you have this, this guy named Adam and Eve walking around naked just eating fruit. I mean, it's a simple life that's peaceful and, and without any error. It's, it's awesome when we think about that. And so our, our minds sort of start to dream about what Eden looks like. What did that really look like? What does it mean to really walk with God? And what does it mean to be in this garden of, of beauty and, and, and peace? And as we're thinking about that, as we're sort of dreaming up this cloud, it sort of gets, gets burst because we get faced with the reality of our world. We're no longer in, in, in la-la land in, in the Garden of Eden, but we get face-to-face -face with the reality of our world. Because we look at the Garden of Eden, and then we open our eyes and we see just down the street, maybe down in Philadelphia, the stuff that's really going on. Or we turn on the news and we see the stuff that is happening all over the world. This doesn't look like the Garden of Eden. This does not look anything like it. And so you've got these two people who are walking around doing their own thing, but we look at our lives, and that's not what it really looks like. Our present world does not look much like that. The grass isn't that green. The air, if you're in Philadelphia, is certainly not that pure. And we, we look around, and we're like, this, this can't be it. This world is not perfect. The reality is that we die. Our bodies die. We get sick. We have to go to hospitals. We, we don't love each other. We use each other often. And when you look at our houses, we have security systems, multiple deadbolts. We have ADT, we have the security dog, and an iron gate in front of our house. I mean, something is wrong. We, we feel the need to always protect ourselves. I mean, something is wrong with this world. This isn't normal that we put up cellars around our lives and sort of lock ourselves in these cages. Something is wrong. And so we have police officers, we have jails, we have death, we have death penalties, we have military forces on call, ready to kill at a moment's notice. Is it just me or is there something wrong with this world? And so us wise humans that we are, we see all these problems. What do we do? We create more medicine to cure the, to cure the sickness. We, we put up more jails. We get better education to educate. And it's true that we need all this because if we don't, we'll probably be dead sooner than later. We need all this stuff, but does all of this solve the problem? Does it permanently solve the problem of the wickedness of this world? Does it get rid of it? No, it's, it's, it's temporary. That's the world we live in. That is the world that we live in. And now here's where we would tend to suppress the truth of the reality all of that that was just said, all those thieves, all those murderers, all those wicked people out in the world, they're terrible. That's what we would say. 
and we fail to realize that we are those people. We are the problem. We're it. I mean, you can't look at yourself and say, I'm better than any of that. We think of nasty, wicked people, and we point our fingers to all of that nasty stuff. And we convince ourselves that we are, in fact, the good guys, that everyone out there is bad. You and I are the victims of our own wickedness, and that's the reality. The gravity of our fall, the gravity of our depravity is so great. But we try and suppress it, and we don't want to believe it. But what is our condition? What state are we really in? Ephesians 2.1, we'll read it again. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. We are dead, all of us. Dead, think of that. Think of what Paul, when he writes this, is saying. Dead. It's an outrageous thing for Paul to say that we're dead. We think logically and we say dead people can't drive to church. Dead people can't play football in a couple of weeks. Dead people can't be raking leaves. Dead, be dead people can't do these things. How am I dead? I'm very much alive. I'm speaking right now. I'm breathing right now. But dead people, when Paul talks about this, is in the idea that they are powerless. They're completely powerless. We are dead in our sins. Dead people can do nothing to have life if they wanted it back. You don't have dead guys sort of walking up and saying, okay, I'm up from the, from the grave. I didn't really like this whole death thing. I think I'll have life again. You can't choose. You can't think when you're dead. You can't do anything on your own when you're dead. And so Paul says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. He's talking about something far greater than our physical death. He is talking about our spiritual state, far more important than our physical state. Not just dead and neutral, but dead in our sins. We're not just neutral about life. If you say here that everything is up to you, and I, it, if you believe that, that's fine. I'll believe this. It's not a matter of neutrality. If you are alive, you are dead, not just dead, but dead to sin. Dead in sin, in transgression. This death is not just a death in the grave. One Scottish commentator says that it's sort of like dead walking because we, we convince ourselves that we are alive. We walk, we do the motions, and we say, how am I dead? And so like spiritual zombies, we sort of walk around convincing ourselves that we're alive because we have all the out, outward appearances of it. And if you talk about religion, we do all the right things on the outside, convince ourselves that we are spiritual. Listen to me, I'm talking to myself today, and I'll share more about my experience, but I am dead in my sin. But the dilemma is, we can't get out of this death of sin. We can't do it. That's it, we can't do it. Not even if we tried, because when we're dead, we're dead to sin. We have no power, because we're not dead because we sin. But it's actually the exact opposite. I'm not, I'm not a liar because I lie. I lie because I'm a liar. This is our state. This is who we are. We're not liars because we lie. We lie because we're liars. And somehow we think often that simply sin is about doing bad things, right? These things that we do. We don't go to all these crazy places that people go to as the people that we identify as sinners. 
We don't do that stuff. And to make ourselves feel better, we sort of continue along this line of thinking. We say, okay, if I don't sin, I'm not a sinner. So that must mean if I do good, I'm like a super non-sinner. Like, I'm not only not sinning, but when I do good, when God takes out his measuring stick or his meter of measuring this, I will be awesome. God will think I'm awesome because I don't just not sin, but I do better than that. I do, I do good stuff. I'm a good person. I've heard it said this way. If I went to a gym and said, all right, Freddie, put on 400 pounds on that bench, on that bar, and I'm going to lift it. Most of you would laugh. Freddie would probably laugh. And if I tried to do that, I would either move it up a little bit or not move it at all, or the next thing you know, my, cave, my, my chest is caved in and this thing is falling on my chest because I cannot lift over probably 100 pounds. And so the reality is that I'm trying to push this thing as far as I can. And I, I can't do it. And if I do get it moved, it just ends up falling on my chest. I would be fooling myself if I, if I think I could lift this. And so some of us, we have to be honest. I would say all of us, we have to be honest about where we are. That we say, okay, maybe I can't lift the 400 pounds. Maybe I have to take all of these weights off and just use the bar. And sort of just slowly put weights back on. And these weights aren't going to do anything good. But maybe I need to just be honest with myself and say what my state really is. Or think of it this way. One pastor named John MacArthur said it like this. If we all choose to run as fast as we can, right here, or maybe right at the road of the Jersey Shore, one of the clean ones, if we walked and walked there and we ran as fast as we could, jumped right off the shore and hoped to land in Morocco, we couldn't do it. Some of us will get farther than others. Some of us will come short. But all of us will come short of Morocco. We will not cross the Atlantic from Jersey to Morocco. As hard as we try, as much as we train, we can get the nicest speedos we want. We can do all of that, but we won't get to Morocco. We can do the outward stuff, but we won't get to Morocco. And so the thing is, all of the goodness of the people that train and all of the goodness that people think they have, it all means nothing because all of us fall short. All of us. We were born this way. This is who we are. We're not clean slates. We are born into this. And I think, I think Jay said this before, but think of, think of your kids. When, you, when you're with your kids, if you have a kid, I don't, but I'm guessing if you guys were with your kids and they knocked over a lamp, you ask the kid, hey, did you knock over that lamp? The kid says, I don't know. And so then you don't go, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Maybe your mom or I tried, knocked it over. No, you don't say, your kid is lying. He's using his sinful cuteness to lie and get out of the thing that he just caused. And so as, as morbid or whatever as that seems, you're, are, we are born into this. This is something we are. It's not something we do. We weren't created this way, but when our father Adam, when we read in, in Genesis, when he sinned, the human condition became flawed, marred completely. We're like broken pianos that cannot find pitch. And so every tune, every note that we sing, every note that we say is inherently flawed, but we need repair. 
Okay, reading from verse 1 to 2, Ephesians 2, 1 to 2, we read on. And you were, we read from verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're not going to spend too much time in verse 2, but I want to say this. I want to note that there are enemies of God. There are literal enemies of God. A world that Satan is tempting to spiritual death. It exists and it's very real. We live in a world where things like lust and greed are commended and rewarded. A place where when you step on the people on the bottom to get to the top, you get promotions. Places where adultery has sort of seemed like a trend. Maybe the next trend is marriage. I don't, we have these like twisted, distorted ideas of what life is actually supposed to look like. But again, we're not just the victims. We are very much a part of it. Think of your own life. Think of what you deal with in your own life. Think of what goes on inside your head. Think of all those decisions that you want to make, but you don't because of some obligation or something. Sin is real. The, the temptations of this world are real. And we are part of the problem. While Satan may have baited the hook, while he may have put the bait on the hook, it's us who bite. He doesn't make us do it. Verse 3, we read on. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We readily look at Satan and the world as bad. I say this again. We readily think that we are the victims. And we want justice for all of that sin. We want justice when someone cuts us off on the road. That's why we have horns on our steering wheels. We want justice when, when the bank messes up and overdrafts unnecessarily. We want justice when someone murders someone. We want them either incarcerated or, or killed or hung. We, we want justice. But when, when we do something, when we do something wrong, we, we downplay it. We say, no, no, it's, it's not that bad. It's not, it's not like you think. I'm not that bad. And so we downplay it. Verse 3 says that we are those who deserve God's wrath by nature. God's wrath, the worst wrath, the, the, the being who has created everything, His wrath on us by nature. It's no small thing. It's not because of something we do, but we're predisposed to this. If we really do not understand this part, reason I'm saying it over and over again, because if we don't understand this part, our condition properly, if we don't understand that, we will only incompletely and falsely understand everything else. We really have to understand that we are dead. Unresponsive, lifeless. We can do nothing because of our deadness. And it's a deadness in sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. In Romans chapter 6.23, the wages of this sin is death. It's weighty. We die in our sins eternally, forever. Without God, that is hell. And I say that figuratively and literally. It's hell, literally, but it's hell because God isn't there. Everything good and perfect comes from God. Rest, friendship, love. 
Hell does not have these things because all of these things are God's. And so we are damned to this thing. And if sin leads to death, what is our fate? We're hopeless. We are hopeless. And I put a period right at the end of that. But then we had two more dots the end of that period, and we read on. And then we read the joy of our hearts in verse 4. If you've been feeling the weight of your condition and how corrupt we are, then you've come here feeling that, that, you're, that you've messed up in life, that you suck, that you stink, that you're a horrible person. If you have felt the weight, not only today, but in your life of being a sinner, of being flawed, and verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2 is literally the best two words that you could ever read or hear in light of who you are, in light of who I am. But God. But God. Yes, it was true that we were dead. We were lifeless, following the devil and the world. God's wrath was upon us, and we were hopeless. We couldn't do anything in ourselves. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And Paul, it seems like he can't stop because there's no period. He continues to say, By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seat, seated us with Him in the, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. After hearing all of that mess that we came from, after hearing all of that junk, feeling like we were the scum of the earth, and we were, we get to verse 4 and we, we pull out our brightest highlighters, we underline that verse, and we say, yes, but God, just look at these words that are said here. We have words like rich in mercy and great in love and grace and kindness. And because when we started reading this passage, Ephesians 2, it said, and you, and listed all this stuff, and you, and you, and you. Get to verse 4, but God, in spite, despite us, God. I am a sinner. Jesus never sinned, but I I'm a sinner. You all are sinners. But He, God, died for my sins when He did nothing. Do you realize how incredible that really is? Jesus on the cross in John 19.20, the fourth gospel in the New Testament, says it is finished. Throws His hands up and says it is finished. That is not something that says I've been defeated but when he says it is finished, he means for good. It's done completely. We don't do anything. I don't have to do anything else. Wrath was delivered, but not for me. All of that wrath, all of that anger was delivered. But it wasn't for me. It was all delivered on Jesus. Not just mine, not just yours, but all of history. Everyone who ever has lived and will live. All of the sin of humanity on Jesus. He took it all on himself on the cross and died with it. Jesus conquered sin, Satan, the world, flesh, and death. 
He rose, and when he rose, guess what? I rose with Jesus Christ, and I have gained something that I couldn't gain on my own. No partial work was done on the cross. It wasn't as if God did half the stuff, and I meet him halfway and say, okay, God, I got it from here. I'll do the rest. Because if that was the case, Jesus' work on the cross really wasn't a complete work at all. If we say that I have to do this, this, and that to complete my salvation, Jesus' work was not complete. I don't have to contribute more to make it full. And I don't have to make up the difference by being a good person or doing the right stuff. We can take those things off of us. We are free now in Jesus Christ. That is freedom. There's no prerequisite that says, do this and then I will love you. Do this and then I will save you. But it is in our deadness that he has saved us. We literally couldn't do anything. And so this is the lie that many people who say they're Christians believe. As a Christian, you accept that Jesus did the work on the cross, that you literally cannot do anything. God did not enable you to be saved. He saved you. Like There's nothing in between there. He saved you. He saved me. If you have Christ, you're saved. You're good. The problem with many is that we've made salvation not about what God has done for us, but what we can do for God to make our salvation valid. But what we, with what we do with these hands, what we do with these lips, what we show with our external bodies means nothing. We, we, we make sure that all the outward stuff lines up. And the harsh reality is this. That kind of salvation, that kind of salvation turns out to be based on our works and goodness. And salvation that is based on our goodness or our work is not salvation at all. It's not. Because salvation is in Christ. Because salvation is given by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. For Him to do it everything, for Him to do it all, not through us. Verse 8 to 9 we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. A lot of us have been told or are right now in, in situations where we are feeling the pressure to be good and to do awesome, to be perfect. That you need to play the part of what it means to be a Christian and do those things that they do and don't do the things that, that they're not supposed to do and then you can merit your salvation. And that as you do those things, Christ will accept you and that, that you would become a better Christian and then you would get into heaven. A lot of us may be there right now or maybe have been there forever. But that's not the gospel. It's not. It's just not the gospel. You will never be good enough, ever. To pay down your debt of sin to God is impossible. You'll never do it. How good is good enough anyways? How high is that measuring stick to get on this righteous roller coaster? How, how good do we have to be? I mean, if we have to be good, we should at least know how good that is. There has to be some kind of way we can find that out, right? But there's no guide. There's nothing that shows us how good, or there's no meter that shows us, ding, 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 I've arrived. Now I can get to heaven. It doesn't exist. We are justified through Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. Jesus actually does say that we must be perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Jesus says that we 
must be perfect. And so, yes, the religious are right when they say that. The people who call us to be perfect, they are dead on. But it's not from our goodness. It's not our perfection. It is rather that Jesus is perfect and that on the cross, He took our sin and filth. Everything that we were, all the junk, He took it. And what we got in return was His righteousness. And so we, through Jesus Christ, are fine, we're good, we are saved. I can do nothing, but I literally get everything I need in Jesus Christ. Can you believe that God came to this earth, lived a life, died a death at the hands of those that He created, so that my sin would be removed, so that your sin would be removed, and that I might have eternal life in Him? It is unthinkable, it is unimaginable to even get our minds wrapped around this. And this is why we're here. This is why we sing. Not because we're great and holy, but because God is great, holy, merciful, compassionate, and loving toward us. This is the great work that has made so many of us here change. A lot of us, if you look around even, or if you know some of the people around here, you're wondering, what are you doing here? This is church. This is not where you would be comfortable. This is not what you think life is supposed to be like. A lot of us hated church, but now we find ourselves plugged into soul care communities, plugged into the church, helping in ways that we've never thought we would. Why? Because we've begun to realize how great it is that God has loved us, that He has saved us. Because we suck, we stink, we are horrible people. But we have realized how great God is. And that makes us sing, that makes us worship, that makes us live lives passionately for Jesus Christ, not based on our own works. This great work of Christ is what, made, what has made people here at Seven Mile Road come and be a part of this community or be a part of the communities that are around the world, down the street from, from us in Philadelphia. People you wouldn't expect to be about God and about learning more about Him. Something goes off in our hearts that makes Jesus the supreme object of our affections. Why? Because He has loved us. This is why we, can bo- we can't boast, because it's all about Him. We literally have no room to boast. It's, it's nonsense. We'll sing about that in a moment. When we sing these songs, think these thoughts. Think of where you are. We're not tremendous people who do everything right. We don't deserve it. But in our death, He saw us. He loved us. He died for us. He revived us. And He has saved us. Salvation is not contingent on what I do, but completely what Jesus has done. Think of it like this. When when I get to heaven, I can't say to God, look at all of this stuff that I did. I think I've deserved it. I think I've earned it, right? I'm I'm a good guy. If you believe that when you get to heaven, you can say that I earned it, that I was baptized, I gave money, I adopted children, I went to church my whole life, I took communion, I was a good neighbor, I kept the Ten Commandments and all the other extra ones that are in the Bible. If you get to heaven and say that I've done all this, let me in, and that's all you're basing your salvation on, You can't do that. You cannot do that and be saved. Give it up. And I'm telling myself, give it up, Sibby. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't use fire to put out fire. You don't throw more water into the the pool when someone is drowning. You don't use humans to fix our human condition. 
We need someone on the outside to do that. Someone who is great like God. The only person who can do it. When I get into heaven, the only thing of both entire value of an, any value that I can say to God when he asks me, what are you doing here? The only thing I can say is, Jesus. I can literally say nothing else. I can't, I can't, I can't say anything else. It's Jesus. And so is for all of us. He did it all. Trust in him, not religion, not man-made righteousness, not your goodness. If you have Jesus, you have been saved. You have a new heart. You have a new mind. You have new desires, new passions in life. And when you sin, you're going against that which God has saved you from and transformed you from. And so we are new creation. So where does that bring us? God, while we were dead, gives us life and saves us by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now what? Where do we go from here? I will be honest with you. I grew up as a Christian. I, I went through life. And it's funny because I heard stuff like this when I was about 11 or 12 that I didn't have to earn my righteousness and earn my salvation. And I rejected it completely because in my mind, I was so set on the idea that I sin. And right after I sin, I better say a confession because if I don't, the next moment I'm ending up in hell. I have no hope. And this idea of my performance and even the things that I do will get me into hell or get me into heaven was so heavy in my mind. What that led to years later, two years ago, was that I started to crumble. The foundation was so weak that I went from belief in God to doubt in God. And then I said I was an atheist. It all crumbled for me because my foundation was not true. And so we know that religion can be dangerous because it walks under the guise of holiness, under the guise of spirituality, and we are not saying that salvation doesn't change us. We're saying the opposite, that when you are saved, that you really do change. The way you live really does change. You can't meet Jesus and say, okay, nothing has changed. It's impossible. When you are saved, your life is new. You change. You're a new person. We don't throw our hands up and continue living in sin. It doesn't happen. He changes us. My question to us today is this. What is at the heart of your belief or what's at the heart of your unbelief? As a body of believers here, what would mark you if you want, if you want to be committed to this church or some other church, but specifically here, what would mark you as a member of Seven Mile Road as a believer? Is it your good works? Is it your church attendance? Is it, all the, is it all the stuff that is required of you, or is it something that's found in Jesus Christ? Goodness does not get you into the club. Goodness does not validate you. Intellect and charm is not good enough. In fact, none of us are good enough, but Jesus is. And that's the gospel. That is the gospel. I want to end with a story, and then we'll pray. I heard this story this past week as I was preparing a famous actor was at this party with a lot of people and everyone was asking him to recite famous pieces and to say these lines and he was continuing incessantly just to do these over and over again. He had such a huge repertoire that he was continuing to just say lines and repeat all these things. He was at this party and for some odd reason there's this old preacher there and he's hanging out at this party and he's there sitting and he yells out, hey, can you, can you do Psalm 23? And so the actor is like, okay, I, I know that. I know Psalm 23. Okay, I'll do it if you do it after me. So 
The old preacher says, all right. So this actor, he, he recites it beautifully. Beautiful diction, perfect intonation, all the right inflections. He says it beautifully. Beautiful, beautiful way. From beginning to end, and then when he gets at the end, he finishes and the, the place erupts. They applause. Beautiful, you did that beautifully. And then you have this old preacher go up. He has this gravelly voice from years of preaching and he starts to say Psalm 23. He recites it. It's not as beautiful as the actor. It's not, it doesn't sound so hot and so pretty. But at the, at the end of it, there was no applause. There was nothing. But there was not one dry eye in the room. Tears coming down these, the, the faces of these people. And so then this actor came up to the, to the preacher and said, Sir, what you have is different from what I have. I know the verse. I know Psalm 23. But you know the shepherd of Psalm 23. That's different. My question to us today is simply, do we know the shepherd? And do we know what that really means and what it means to believe in him? Lots of people know religious jargon. Lots of people know what to do with their extremities and what to do with their lips. We can play the part. We can be actors. Perfect. We can, we can do that well. We can do the actions, but have you really met the Savior? And if you haven't, I invite you to do that now. Take Jesus in. Let him change your life. Let's pray.